The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In today's episode, I speak with Elon Steinhardt, the founder and CEO of Eclipse Foods, a Y Combinator-backed startup making plant-based dairy products. Elon has spoken regularly on food innovation at Harvard, MIT, Yale, Berkeley, and Stanford, and has worked with companies such as Kraft Heinz, Nestle, and Kellogg's. In his work at the Good Food Institute, Elon incubated dozens of startups and advised investors and strategic partners on alternative proteins. Elon has co-founded two startups and studied at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. In this conversation, we talk about Elon's background and how he got involved in the food industry, as well as how he met his co-founder, Thomas Bowman, and how the idea of Eclipse Foods came about. We then discuss how they both got into Y Combinator, the prestigious startup accelerator, as well as what their first product is going to be and what the long-term vision is for the company, plus much, much more. If you want to hear a great early-stage food entrepreneurship story, this one is a must-listen. It is packed with interesting ideas and stories about how, with the right amount of talent, hard work, and creativity, nearly anything is possible. I especially loved Elon's tips on how they hacked their Y Combinator interview, as well as Demo Day, which led them to attract some high-profile investors. Eclipse Foods is just getting started, and most of you listening to this probably haven't even tried their products. But this is a company that should be on your radar and is going to be an exciting story to follow. If you are looking to get involved in the plant-based foods industry, Eclipse is growing their team. And who knows, you could be part of the team shaping their story. Without further ado, let's dive into my chat with Elon from Eclipse Foods. Elon, I tried your um, your prototype ice cream product. Uh, was it about a month ago? Yep. And uh, it, it firstly, it was presented in, in in a really, I would say, I hate to use the word fancy, but it was it was well done. I think Thomas from your your co-founder did a great job of, of presenting it in a really uh, kind of gourmet style. And I took a bite of it, and I'm, I'm not. I'll admit, I'm not the world's biggest ice cream fan, but. Um, when I tasted it, it was like, well, this tastes like 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 gelato. This tastes like ice cream. Is it cashew or is it uh, almonds? And you guys said it's it's no nut, it's no seed, which uh, which kind of surprised me. So that's what got me really you know curious about what it is that you're actually doing over here because I I did read some press about your funding round and how you got through Y Combinator. 
but I didn't know enough about the, the product that you were building. And it sounds like what you have going on over here is kind of interesting. But we'll get more into your products and your technology and the food that you're, that you're going to be putting out fairly soon. Um, but let's kind of rewind a little bit and start with, um, with your background. You're a, what I, what I, from the outside, it seems to be a, a new entrepreneur or a first-time entrepreneur, but I'm, I'm guessing that's not true. What, what's your background? Yeah, uh, I'll start by just saying thank you because in the context of speaking about my background, um, you play a role. <laughs> and when I was making the transition from being a software entrepreneur to uh, coming into food tech, I actually listened to a lot of your podcasts <laughs> and was inspired and listened to the podcast with Bruce Friedrich as mm. I was preparing for um, the position with the Good Food Institute. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. That's awesome. Full circle. This is coming full circle. Well, I'm looking forward to more of that. It's only been two years, so it's not like I've been doing this podcast for 10 years. And it tells you about the, the pace of change now, right? And the fact that you were listening to something uh, two years ago as you were transitioning into the space and... And here you are now with your own company. Uh, it, it definitely makes me me feel pretty good about the work that, that we're doing here. And I'm, I'm glad you were inspired in a small way. So it sounds like you were in the software and tech space before this? Yeah, so I'll go back a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so I was uh, at Berkeley at the business school doing an undergrad degree um, and was very involved in entrepreneurship. Uh, had a little kind of fake startup uh, that was part of a pitch competition that went all the way to the, the finals and uh, was just generally involved in the entrepreneurship space. Graduated from there uh, to go work at AT&T in a leadership development program there. Um, the best part of that was that I actually was the first person to be granted an international promotion to, um, to Puerto Rico. So oh. I was 23 years old living in Puerto Rico, um, having just a blast. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I was with AT&T, mm -hmm. which is like the antithesis <laughs> of innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, so lasted about two years there, came back to the Bay Area and co-founded the software business. Um, if you're familiar with Shutterfly. Yeah. So it was similar to Shutterfly, but mm -hmm. high end for wedding albums. Okay. Uh, very interesting space for a 24, 25 year old <laughs> to be in. Um, and was running that for, for uh, a bit on the marketing and business side. Um, and a, about a year in, just learned about the uh, industrial animal agriculture system, the impacts it was having on us, on the planet, on the animals, and said, man, I, I want to opt out. I don't want to be part of that. So changed the way I ate, eating for the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, about a year passed, and I said, man, I don't think I'm doing enough by just having my own food choices uh, impact the, the planet. I want to do something bigger, right? Uh, around the same time, my friend, who this is very common, I'm sure, if anyone listening has gone plant-based, mm -hmm. they would know that uh, people send you a lot of things, uh, like links about plant-based stuff. And he posted on my wall, which dates the, the story mm -hmm. uh, on Facebook, he posted on my wall uh, a link to the Impossible Burger. And that was like such an aha moment because I said, man, like my personal, my personal passion mm -hmm. is having an impact through the food system, right? My professional passion is innovation and entrepreneurship. And this is the combination of those two. And so if these guys can do it, like I can do it. And so that's when I knew that I would start a company in this space. 
Um, and sort of looking at, well, where can I go from being like a software entrepreneur to, uh, to being a food tech entrepreneur? I, I thought that the best way to get there would be to work with the leading nonprofit in that space that is like truly at the center um, to learn everything I could and also to make an impact immediately instead of having that impact happen down the line. Uh, so went to work with a good food institute, uh, just an amazing group. Uh, they've been on this podcast mm -hmm. before. Um, and then from, from that work in the Good Food Institute, transitioned over to where I am today. Well, the best part about this is you're not the first person I've heard who said something like that. Um, I mean, in some ways, my journey was similar, except maybe not just two years ago, nine years ago, maybe, uh, when I realized, well, if I'm passionate about something and if I really want to do something impactful, uh, wow, we have this opportunity now. And we, and I, that's why I think it's really exciting that the time we live in is because we, uh, at a stage where I think food, I know this is a bit of a cliche, but food is the new tech revolution, I think. Um, I mean, I worked in media and tech for a decade plus, and this was happening right now with the number of really exciting, innovative startups that are coming about. Many of them happen to be in the Bay Area, like you. Um, what they're doing is very similar to what I've noticed happening in, in the technology industry, except the difference here is I feel um, we're not just claiming to save the planet with the, or save the world with some sort of app. Uh, we're actually working on food solutions that, that may have a shot of averting the climate crisis. So uh, it's really exciting to hear you say that as being the reason why, um, why you got into this space. But it still kind of amazes me that you've managed to do this in such a short amount of time. Um, and of course, you're, you're just at the starting line, really, for your company. Um, let's, let's go back to GFI and the experience you had over there. How long were you at GFI? And, and how did that prepare you for what came next in terms of diving back into entrepreneurship? Yeah, the work at the Good Food Institute was a, an incredible accelerating function for becoming an entrepreneur in this space. Um, specifically, my role, why I came into the Good Food Institute was to help start the innovation department. Um, and what that meant was basically two things. The first was um, running an incubator for the plant-based space, mm -hmm. right? So working with other plant-based startups to help them get started, whether that was fundraising strategy or business strategy or uh, connections and networking and things like that. Um, helping prepare some of the documents. The, the startup manual prepared by Brianna Cameron is like an incredible document that is available to entrepreneurs that are interested in, um, in starting companies in this space. So helping create those kinds of documents as well. Uh, so that was one side of the, the equation. The other side was actually inspiring entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, so going and I spoke at all the best universities in the United States, uh, keynoted a, a few conferences, like really to get people inspired and aware of the opportunities in the plant-based space uh, for entrepreneurship. So combining those two things together uh, gave me an incredible over overview mm -hmm. of where the opportunities were in this space, um, how were the most effective companies solving the problems that needed to be solved, and where I could use my skills and my background to make the most impact. Um, and certainly, 
connecting with Thomas in order to, to do that was um, a really, really impactful way to get there. So you met Thomas, who's your co-founder, um, during this process while you were at GFI. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Thomas and his background? Because I know he's worked in this space for a while now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Thomas is just a, a food genius, <laughs> uh, which is fortuitous for me and mm -hmm. also for our, for our space. Um, so he uh, was previously the director of product development at Hampton Creek Just. Uh, so he created Just Mayo, the cookies, uh, the dressings. Um, and so he's, his name is kind of behind some of the best-selling plant-based products in the yeah. world. Uh, before that, he chefed or staged at a total of 16 Michelin stars around the globe. So whenever he cooks dinner for me, I feel like I'm getting a great deal. Um, he, he was, yeah, basically some of the, the biggest name restaurants that, that you know, Elenia, French Laundry, Motto, Autumn. Uh, and twice nominated James Beard, Rising Star Chef, mm. uh, named Zagat's 30 Under 30. And all that time was in molecular gastronomy. So mm. using science to play with food. Um, he has a degree from CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, in food science, um, and a degree in engineering before that. So really, like, if you were to ask for someone who's going to create the next set of products that mm. will revolutionize the food industry, it, it's Thomas. Yeah. And so getting to partner with him, he has the science and, and PD side, and then I have the business and uh, alternative protein expertise side, and bring that team together... I think that's why so many of our investors are excited and, and people see a lot of promise. Yeah, and that explains why he his presentation of the ice cream when I was here last time was was uh, so well put together <laughs> because he's a, he's a chef with, with a lot of experience. So I, I'm assuming you both met and was he, like, how did you stumble upon this idea or was this very intentional? Because, it, you know, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand it, you are at least in the beginning, going to be playing in the non-dairy or the dairy alternative um, space. And that space is notoriously very crowded at the moment. So we don't need to get into the numbers, but it is, uh, it's notoriously crowded because there's tremendous opportunity in that space. Sure. And everyone seems to be jumping onto that bandwagon, even if they didn't start uh, with the intention of being plant-based companies, they're realizing that's where the future is. So... That's what, they're what, that's what they're doing. How did you come up with the idea for the kind of products that you, you're working on right, right now? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll tell you how we met and then how, how we kind of came on the idea. So we were, we were actually doing a lot of the same speaking circuits. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the moment where we were like, okay, maybe we should be friends is uh, at the world premiere of the Just Egg. <laughs> um, Thomas was there like cooking up the just egg for everyone there. And I, I was, uh, kind of supporting on the sideline, talking to investors and, and partners and media and telling them about the, the plant-based future. And we're like, okay, we see each other a lot. Let's chat. And that conversation evolved in a really, really nice way. Um, and one day we just sat down and we said, Hey, if we were to start a company together, what would we do? Mm. And, I had an idea. I had developed some um, some plant-based calamari. It was in my freezer, and I was like, Thomas, you got to try this. Um, and obviously, Thomas developed much better products than I did. And we saw the success of liquid milk, right? Mm -hmm. Like plant-based milks, like almond, soy, mm -hmm. et cetera. And that really brought a lot of the mainstream consumers that had never consumed any plant-based products into the plant-based world, right? 
So we said the most obvious extension from an impact perspective is to get those people to do other dairy products. And from there, once people are consuming a large part of their diet in a plant-based way, we can introduce much more easily with less cognitive dissonance other plant-based products that, that might seem a little removed, like a plant-based shrimp or a plant-based whatever. And so the point is that we, we decided let's make plant-based dairy products that actually appeal to the mainstream consumer mm -hmm. so that we can go after this $100 billion massive market that, that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't exist today. There, there's, no, there's no products out there that uh, a mainstream consumer will say, yeah, that's definitely for me. But that's exactly what we're doing at Redo Foods is we're making products that taste just like the real thing, have the same texture, have the same functionality, mm -hmm. and therefore it's for everyone. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the, some of the recent data that came out, I think it was uh, Plant-Based Foods Association and GFI commissioned uh, Mintel, if I'm not wrong, to do the latest numbers on the plant-based food industry by subsector. And, it, you know, of course, the big ones are, are plant-based meats and, and, of course, the liquid uh, non-dairy uh, se sector is probably the biggest. Uh, but what was I thought was fascinating was to see the the... The, the number of double-digit double growth that's happening. It's in, it's in non-dairy yogurts, it's in ice cream, and it's in cheese. Yeah. Um, all categories where there are companies and there are brands currently, but um, uh, as you kind of just mentioned, interestingly, I don't, that's, it seems like a tougher category for a mainstream consumer who's not given up dairy to try a product in. Um, but I, I do want to ask you another question around, like, let's consider if liquid non-dairy alternatives are a gateway to get people to eventually try some of the other products that exist out there. One of the things that I found interesting about what's happened in the non-dairy space for liquid milk is that people buy almond milk and oat milk and soy milk to a certain extent uh, and all the other kinds that exist now not because they taste like dairy. Uh, they don't taste like dairy. They buy it because they like how oat milk tastes. They like how almond milk tastes. And they like how it functions. And they like the products that exist out there. Do you think that's, that necessarily carries over into categories like cheese and, and, um, and ice cream, for example? That people want something that tastes like dairy. Is it, is it different when it comes to ice cream and cheese versus liquid milk? Yeah, it's a good. It's a very good question, and I could make the the ultimate argument, right? That people don't buy plant-based milks because they taste like dairy, because no plant-based milks taste like dairy, <laughs> and that's the innovation of what we've done. So we've created a, a plant-based milk that mm -hmm. actually tastes, functions, looks just like dairy, mm. and and so the question, no one knows, right? But if we look at what Beyond and Impossible have done with the, the numbers being at above 90% of people who are consuming Beyond Meat products uh, not being vegans or vegetarians, yeah. there is some indication that, that, yeah, people want things that actually taste mm -hmm. like the real thing. And so I think once our milk comes to market, and that will be in a while, um, that there will be a big shift in how people consume the, their plant-based milks as well. Yeah. So your theory, I guess, is, which is probably, probably, you know, we, I guess time will tell, but it's interesting is that people are consuming it despite of the fact that it doesn't taste like 
um, dairy because they just want to choose a plant-based alternative. Um, and of course, they, 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 they use, for whatever uses and functions that they're applying the milk, it makes sense to use almond milk or oat milk. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done yeah. the, the deep dive research on why people choose oat versus soy versus... Yeah. I'm sure that people do enjoy the flavor now that they've started tasting it. And, and um, so definitely that is part of the equation. Uh, I just think that it's hard to it's hard to ask whether people want cheese that tastes like cheese mm. based on people buying oat milk, right? Um, the fact is that when we talk to people, they, they say like, look, the, the current options don't really taste like what I'm missing. And in the end, this is, a, this is an old thing that we used to say at GFI all the time, that the, the research shows that people choose their, their food based on three criteria initially, right? It's the, the taste, the price, and the convenience. Mm. And in terms of the taste, uh, yeah, dairy t- is really good. Mm. Like, cheese is, is amazing. Mm. I mean, the reason that we're working on ice cream is uh, what other product in the world would you go to Minnesota in the winter mm. and see a line outside <laughs> waiting for a frozen product or any product for that matter? Right. Like, dairy products are amazingly delicious. Mm. And, and I think that... Um, when making products, we want to get as close as possible to that amazing deliciousness. Yeah, and your your I think your I would agree with you on the fact that cheese. Now that I think about it, uh, and ice cream, people treat them differently, uh, and they they choose those products because of the taste. Uh, it's not something that they're just used to putting in their coffee or their cereal. It is something that they go out of their way no matter what the weather is or how much it even costs sometimes because they're looking for that experience that is sort of a, a treat almost that people enjoy. So I think that's, you know, I can talk about the consumer behavior um, or speculate around consumer behavior for hours, but let's not do that. Um, I do want to understand how, so obviously you met Thomas and how did you end up, uh, I know you went through Y Combinator, which is... Um, Tell us more about that experience for people who don't know what Y Combinator is and how did you even end up getting into Y Combinator? Awesome. Yeah, it's a fun story. Uh, so Y Combinator, for those who don't know, it's uh, the most prestigious tech accelerator in the world. Um, it's called the Harvard of startups, but actually the acceptance rate is lower than Harvard. <laughs> so uh, it's we're very excited that, that we got the chance to, to be in there. Um, and yeah, we went through uh, in... January 2019, uh, and the story of how we got in is actually kind of fun. So Thomas and I were, were talking about um, starting the company, and we, we were actually in the process. We had already started the company, and uh, we were a few months in, and uh, the application deadline was had already passed. And so it was uh, the last day of the late applications we said, should we apply to this thing? And we said, yeah, sure, we can We can try. So uh, we applied. Uh, and in the application, we said, oh, yeah, and we've developed this sour cream prototype that is indistinguishable from the real thing. We had not developed the sour <laughs> cream prototype that was indistinguishable from the real thing. Um, but in startup land, you know, you got to sell the vision. Mm-hmm. And so we got the interview. Mm-hmm. And we had about two weeks from that point um, to figure out exactly how we present them this prototype. And so Thomas went and uh, started working on it, and we got to something pretty good. 
And then we went in, and typically the interview is pretty intense. It's 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, they determine whether they're giving you whatever the number is. For us, it was $150,000. Yeah. And uh, instead of this really intense 10-minute grilling, what ended up happening is we did a blind taste test, <laughs> which was really bold uh, because we had never done a blind taste test with <laughs> our new formula before. <laughs> but we said, well, if, if it's going to work, it's going to work. Yeah. So we go in there. And there's uh, four people, judges or, I guess, interviewers. Hmm. And uh, like you said, Thomas knows how to plate things up. And he, he plated the sour cream in a really nice way. And it was our sour cream next to the best-selling sour cream in the world, which is Daisy. Uh, and next to the best-selling uh, plant-based sour cream, which at the time was Tofuti. And we put that in front of them and we had them taste it. And it was a really exciting experience uh mostly because two out of the two out of the four had no idea i mean everyone knew that tofuti was tofuti <laughs> but between ours and daisy they had no idea um one out of the four said i know that yours is yours uh but i like it more mm. and then the last person was like i, I give up <laughs> and so we got in wow and we did, yeah, we were, we were like, okay, cool, this is perfect. And so it was a, an amazing forcing function to get uh, things started and uh, to go through the amazing program that they have. I mean, there's a, there's a big lesson there, right? As, as much as it sounds absurd that you said we, we've developed a sour cream that's indistinguishable from, the, from a dairy-based sour cream, and you hadn't. Uh, but the lesson there is that when you have a very, you had to now deliver on that promise, uh, within two weeks, which is kind of insane. But uh, it goes back to the simple point of having a very clear true north where you know that's the, the goal post, that's that's what you need to hit. Um, and so you know anything less than that would have been a failure. So, And I guess might as well go big or go home, right? So it's a cool story. I think that's that's really fascinating for others to learn from. Yeah, I think, I think the lesson, and we were pretty close, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that our sour cream tasted like gar uh, cardboard or something. <laughs> it was like... It was it was getting there. Yeah, and I think that's I think Ethan Brown and Beyond Meat were the, in my opinion, were the first ones who, who were able to articulate that clear vision. Said that we're not going to stop till we till we achieve our true north, which is, which is replicate meat from plants, make it exactly like that. And in some ways, we're never going to be truly successful because we'll keep striving to get to that point, and we'll keep pushing. And 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 you look at their ten year journey has been about that. And of course, it's a it's an ongoing journey. It's just some ways it's just entered a new phase now. But to me, that that especially when it comes to um, um, uh, what we're trying to do with our food system, which is just change the way people think about, like redefine what people think meat or dairy or ice cream or cheese is, and create a new, you know, t hopefully fifteen years down the line, people think of this is being dairy because that's all they know is being dairy or this ice cream that you've created to be just that. So uh, it, it helps to have that clarity of vision um, and it helps you get past the, um, the minor obstacles and ups and downs that is launching and growing a startup. So, so let's, let's talk about that process. Now you obviously went through Y Combinator we won't, we don't need to get into that experience. I'm sure it was fun and exciting and, and a pressure cooker-like environment, which which I'm sure brings out the best and worst in people. 
Um, did you end up raising your first your seed round um, through the demo day at demo day at White Combinator? Was that the process? Yeah. So this is if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to any sort of demo day, I think this is the the biggest hack that I have for you. <laughs> um, so we we were very intentional about uh, how we raised the money before and at demo day, and we knew that raising some money before going into demo day would be super critical for creating that uh, that FOMO, creating that feeling that this round is actually happening. Um, before that, let me take a step back and just define Demo Day. So Demo Day is, is the culmination of the Y Combinator uh, Accelerator. And it is, uh, it's actually two days where they bring uh, thousands of investors into a room. Uh, you pitch your, your, uh, your company for, I think it's like a 30-second pitch. Uh, and then you just basically network with investors for the rest of the time. Uh, what we did is we kind of hacked Demo Day, actually. Uh, we brought a soft serve machine in this thousand plus person <laughs> event where there was no food. Mm. We had ice cream. And so there was there was a moment, I will never forget this, where I'm standing there and I'm looking at a line of like 40 investors <laughs> lining up to try my ice cream. And these are folks that if I wasn't in Y Combinator, if we didn't bring the soft serve machine, some of them would be pretty hard to talk to, yeah. to, to get a meeting with. So that was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, <laughs> and the ice cream was a hit, which was great. But going back to the, the fundraising strategy. Mm -hmm. So we actually closed um, about a third of our round before we even got into Demo Day uh, with essentially Demo Day being that forcing function to close that money. Right. Right. Because it's like, hey, look, like I'd love to have you in. Um, demo day, I don't know what's going to happen there. Because it was true. We didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and so we got some amazing investors. We got the the, uh, the creator of Gmail was on our cap table for demo day. The uh, former chairman of the board of Dea Foods. So like a guy who really understands our space. Mm -hmm. Saying like, yeah, these guys are legit. So that was super helpful. And then at demo day, we, we had um, this really tall guy walked up to us. And he said, I've been tracking you guys. I was like, who is this? And then I read Alexis Ohanian. I like, oh. Oh. <laughs> I was like, hey, we yeah. need to get this guy some ice cream. Uh -huh. And so Alexis is, um, after founding Reddit, he uh, then founded Initialized Capital, mm -hmm. amongst other things. He's doing some really cool things that I'm sure you're aware yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, he has Initialized Capital, uh, a, an early stage VC fund, really, really incredible fund. Um, and... They said, we want to meet with you tomorrow. So we met with them, and, and they met just a few days later. They made us an offer um, that was really good, and we were able to take that, uh, close our round, um, have some amazing investors on our cap table, uh, and, yeah, move on with actually growing the business, which is the most important thing. Wow. And so when was this? I mean, we're sitting here. This is uh, July 2019. <laughs> when, did, when did this happen? When did you close that round? The round closed, I think Demo Day was end of March. The round closed early Oh, just April. earlier this year, right. Yeah. Okay, so it's only been a few months since, since this is off and running. Yep. Um, so for someone listening at this point, I mean, the story till this point itself is, is pretty interesting, and I wanted to make sure we, we capture it so someone can understand how, 
you know, how an individual or, or, or two individuals with uh, who have entered into a, a partnership to launch a startup. You, who just two years ago was, weren't even involved in this space, yeah. and here you are sitting um, with some really high-profile investors um, and an interesting product that's about to launch fairly soon. Uh, for someone listening who doesn't know much about your products, this is most likely the first time they've, they've heard you speak, how would you best articulate it to someone who was hearing about this for the first time? Yeah. We are, you can think of us like the Beyond Meat or the Impossible Foods of dairy products. We're making plant-based dairy products that are indistinguishable from conventional dairy products. That means in taste, texture, and functionality. Uh, we're a mission-driven company. I mean, there's a reason why I went to work at a nonprofit. Like, we are here to change the food system. Um, and what that means is to create a food system that is more sustainable, more healthy, and more humane. Um, and so that drives everything that we're doing. How we're able to do that is that we've created a milk, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we created a milk that functions just like real dairy milk. And that's the tech innovation here, is that we can take plants and process them in a way that we've created essentially what is real milk from plants. And so that milk can be used to create cheese or ice cream or sour cream or cream cheese. And as it turns out, the process in which you use to create these products is incredibly impactful on the taste, texture, and functionality. So what you get in the end is what the consumers care about, which is a product that tastes amazing and that has the functionality and also has the price. And so this is another really big point is that the price of these products is way lower than the price of most products out in market. And the reason it's what you mentioned in the intro is that there's no nuts and no seeds and no coconuts. So the, the base ingredients are way cheaper. Um, there's also no soy and no wheat. So these products are free from all common allergens. And then on top of that, there's no gums, no gels, no stabilizers, and no GMOs. So this is already Whole Foods approved. And you think like, whoa, how could you do that? And the answer is deep, deep, deep expertise. Like Thomas is one of the world's experts in functional plant proteins. I mean, functional plant proteins have been cool for about five years. And Thomas was at Hampton Creek before that even. So he's been working on functional plant proteins and using them to create amazing products since uh, almost the inception of people caring about them. Yeah, but the first time I heard about that, I, my question back to you was then what is it made of then if it's not, doesn't contain anything and, and you jokingly said something. But um, so, so I'm assuming this is some, uh, do you have a patent on this, on this process, this technology? Um, you're, you're, so you're skipping almonds and cashews and so I'm assuming that's why it, it makes it cheaper too and you're going directly to plants. I'm assuming those plants are abundantly available and grown so you won't have supply chain issues. That's right. Um, what is the process and what makes it so special and different? Yeah, so it's a blend of five different plants and they're all av like off-the-shelf available commodity crops. So exactly what you're saying. Um, when we looked at creating these products, scale was mm -hmm. like the number one thing we thought about with scale. Oh, oh taste as well was really important. But scale was one of the number one things that we thought about. Um, and, yeah, being able to source these ingredients in a really uh, economic and um, abundant way mm. uh, was definitely uh, the way that we set it up. Right. 
so what was the question? I guess the question is really like, what is the process? What makes it yeah. so, how are you able to, because anyone listening, and this is what I'm thinking right now, I'm assuming others are thinking it too, is that how are you able to take this blend of five plant proteins, convert that into a milk product, milk-like product that tastes, functions exactly like, like dairy, um, and do it without then this is the second part do it without having to add gums and additives and and because that's usually what's happening these days that's is right. that even if you found find a product that's come close to it in terms of taste and texture they've only managed to do that firstly by using nuts most likely and then by adding oils and gums and a few other ingredients that some people have real problems with um how are you able to 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 create what sounds like almost the perfect <laughs> perfect ingredient or perfect product? Yes. Yeah, so, so to answer your question from before, we filed a uh, provisional patent on this, mm-hmm. um, and it is. It's about the process, right? Uh, there's there's. It's about the process, and then it's about the ingredients. So what we did is we looked at milk and we said, what is milk? Like, what is the molecular composition? How does milk interact with itself? with other oils and sugars and and everything else that is in milk. And we basically reverse engineered that using plants. And so it's this understanding of, okay, great, like we have these plants and these combination of plants with these nutrients, with these minerals, with these um, salt and sugar and oil and all of these things together will actually be able to replicate milk. But between that and how you process those plants that was actually our you know, like our huge learning, right? Because there is so many different factors here. There's the, the temperatures and the cool down times and the temps and the pressures and like so many different things going into it. So we like to think of it like the Da Vinci Code, right? <laughs> you have to get everything right in a line in order for it to actually work. And that's actually one of the, the beautiful stories of our company is it was January 24th at 11... 39 p.m. Oh, wow. And uh, we were burning the midnight oil, and we were making some uh, cream cheese. And we had our milk, which at the time was similar to milk, but didn't have the functionality of milk. And um, Thomas really changed one processing parameter and one ingredient, just a small ingredient, one processing parameter. Took the milk, uh, raised it up to 180 degrees in the same way that you would real milk, um, and dropped in some, uh, it wasn't microbial rennet, it was actually um, some sort of acid. I think it was a vinegar of sorts. And what happened was like the biggest aha moment. It flocculated and created curds. Hmm. And so our milk curded. We said, okay, well, this is probably some weird, like not real curds, like, but they were actually just like real dairy curds. And we did that process again and again and again. And it actually was working. We did it. We replicated it with microbial rennet, which is the way that you would um, create real dairy products uh, in an industrial setting. And yeah, what, what we got was curds. And what we then figured out is that we had created this milk that was functioning like real milk. And so that kind of opened up the war chest. We said, whoa, mm. we can make anything. Mm-hmm. And so Thomas started going crazy. And we made like, yes, we had like sour cream and cream cheese and ice cream and uh, a camembert and a Humboldt fog, which we called Humboldt fog, um, because we're cutesy like that. <laughs> um, 
and so many different things. We actually made a white sauce to like rival halal guys, white sauce. <laughs> like there were all these things being made. And then, and this is one of the biggest learnings from white combinator mm. is we were just like, wait, we have to focus mm. because we are a team of two at that point. Now we're a team of four and we're growing. So if you're looking to work in this industry, please check out our website. Um, but we were a team of two and we said, we have to f- figure out one product that we work on with one go-to-market strategy and make that happen in order to take baby steps in order to truly change the food system. Mm. But you discovered your secret sauce and that, and you have that and now you can, you can hopefully, yeah, because you know, on, it's fun to sit in a kitchen and create different kinds of products. It's, it's another thing to do that as at scale uh, as a food company uh, and I'm, I'm sure you, you made a wise choice to, to pick one space first. Um, and so which one is that? I'm assuming that's, you kind of hinted at it. It seems like ice cream's the first bet. Um, and that's what I tasted too. Um, why ice cream and, and what's your plan to kind of um, roll that out in the in the months and years ahead? Yeah, ice cream is, uh, as we like to say, people are fanatical about ice cream. Like We talked about waiting outside in the freezing cold for food and Almost uh, no other food other than ice cream gets lines like ice cream does. Um, there's also the aspect that ice cream is center of plate. So if we're modeling our uh, our go-to-market strategy after uh, similar to the way that Impossible went to market with the tastemakers, um, then we need a product that stands on its own. And this concept of center of plate is very true for ice cream. Like people go for ice cream, uh, but people don't go for cream cheese and bagel. They go for a bagel and cream cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's that. It's also that ice cream is fun um, and that, frankly, it's one of the easier products for us to produce right off the bat. Um, and if we learned anything at White Combinator, it's that you, you need to move fast and you need to do a lot of uh, consumer testing and figure out what people love and create something that people need and love. Yeah, I mean, those are all really good good reasons. So I'm assuming you're launching with food service first. Are you looking at um, high-end restaurants or chains, fast food chains? Are you are you literally following Impossible's playbook with, with uh, the way they rolled it out with chefs? Uh, TBD. Okay. <laughs> uh, we are having conversations with basically the top people in the culinary world, the top mm-hmm. people in the ice cream world, um, who will be our partner uh, for this big launch, uh, we will know soon enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the long-term vision is uh, really clear for the ice cream. It's If every Burger King has an Impossible Burger, mm-hmm. they should certainly have a dairy-free shake. And if they're going to have a dairy-free shake, they should certainly be using our liquid base because it is the most delicious and because it is the most affordable and because it functions just like the real thing. So it's really the easiest plug and play. Um, and I think with the ice cream, that's, that's when we'll know, like, wow, we have actually made the impact that we want to make. Um, and then simultaneously, of course, we're, we're working on a lot of other products. Um, yeah, so that's pretty exciting. Now we get to the, the tricky part, right? Um, when I say tricky, because again, I kind of uh, said earlier, you can you can create literally anything under the sun in a kitchen, and and use it to to make delicious food with. Uh, it's a completely different matter to produce that as, at scale, economically. Even. Absolutely. Um, 
what how do you how are you preparing for this next phase um you mentioned you're only a team of four so obviously you're at a very early stage of your company um that also probably means you use a co-manufacturer because mm-hmm. there's no way four of you could be doing all of this um how do you look at the next um say if you were to reconnect a year from now um in your mind wh- how far down the line would you be and how are you preparing for these next phases of your company yeah uh working with a co-manufacturer that can scale mm-hmm. uh which we have so that's nice uh is really important to reach the volume that we're projecting um yeah we need to grow the team uh we're i think once we hit this launch there will be like so much happening um but yeah i mean i think a year out from now if we reconnected i'm sure we'll hang out before that yeah. uh but a year from now uh if we kind of said what you know what has happened uh i think there will be uh, a significant amount of places that you can get our ice cream we're going to move a lot faster than some of our predecessors uh and I, I think beyond impossible for for laying the path that we get to now run through, uh, where they had to kind of chop it down with a machete. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of production, in terms of uh, willingness to to have these kinds of products, we're already seeing a great signaling from the market. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you were able, given how you describe the the process of being able to even create the product. Um, or the base ingredient that's now being used to create multiple products, that you were able to find someone who could manufacture that. Because I would think that would be the biggest stumbling block in some ways. If you look at Impossible or Beyond, they both have had production challenges um, because what they're doing is so unique, they had to do it themselves. Yeah, uh, that's what's really exciting, actually, is that when we were creating this product, we thought about, um, we thought about equipment as like, how can we actually do this at scale? So Thomas has taken over 50 products from bench to massive scale. Uh, and so this is not a, not a new concept. Mm. And he's, I mean, he's seen what custom equipment can do to a process and how much it can slow it down. So everything that we've designed is actually with that in mind. So ironically, the best partners for us from production are dairy producers <laughs> and dairy manufacturers um, and our co-man is, is a conventional ice cream co-man. Uh, so in terms of, of getting that part down, that's why I say like the, the path is, has been cleared and now we can just like run. Let's get to something more important, which is how soon can consu- end consumers or someone listening to this podcast, uh, taste one of your products? Like what is it before the end of this year, uh, early 2020, what's the best case scenario? Yeah, it will be available this year. Okay. Um, it depends where you live. Mm-hmm. You might have to travel for it, <laughs> which I don't know. I mean, let, let's not. Let's, uh, let's save the carbon footprint and uh, <laughs> wait until we're available in your market. Yeah, um, yeah the, the widespread availability will probably be a little bit further out. Got it. And so let's, let's get into, you know, what you want this to be in the years ahead. I know you've touched on it a few times in our conversation today, but if you if you really had to think about the kind of impact you want to have with this with this company, with this brand, with the products that you're going to be launching this year and in the next few years, um how how would you 
how do you best describe the kind of impact you want to have? The impact is displacing as much animal-based products as possible, right? So it's nice that it ends up lining up with selling as much as possible. Um, the vision for, for this company is actually even bigger than being um, just a, a dairy company. Like we are developing platforms for creating plant-based products that are indistinguishable from their animal counterpart. We have a technology in the background for processing plant proteins that I won't go into the details, but um, has the, the potential, if it works out the way that we're seeing, um, to really change the way that the entire industry processes plant proteins and uses plant proteins. And so where we go when that happens that's a, a longer out conversation. And one of my favorite parts of my job is that I don't have to think about those things very deeply because I just have to get to the next phase. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, we intend to be the Kraft Heinz or the Kellogg's of plant-based products. Uh, and getting there will be a really long process, but we're starting by releasing the best-in-class plant-based dairy products and from there expanding. Perfect. And so when you look... Um far ahead let's say because this is not going to be a, a sprint i mean as much as it's going to be sprint to the next uh milestone and checkpoint um this is this you're in it for the long haul because there's only way you're going to be able to make that kind of impact is if you if you stay dedicated for the long haul um food companies i mean the biggest food companies have been around for decades and decades um there's ways to hack it, and you've already proven you you have been able to. You've been pretty successful so far at at finding uh, shortcuts without necessarily compromising on on the quality of your products or the the kind of uh, impact that you want to have. But but let's look ahead thirty years, right? Because I know right in the beginning you mentioned um, you got into this because you were concerned about the impact of food and the environment. Um, this is, you know, I close out all my podcasts with this question and I want to put the same question to you. So if you were to look 30 years ahead, approximately 30 years to the year 2050 and your vision comes to be true and um, you achieve what you set out to achieve and this whole industry achieves what it set out to achieve, what is your ideal vision of, uh, of the food industry and what it looks like in the year 2050? Nice. I like the question. Uh, the answer is that industrial animal agriculture is, is no longer a thing. I'm not saying animal agriculture will no longer be a thing, but the really irresponsible and unsustainable and cruel and unhealthy production means that we have today uh, are, yeah, just they're just not in existence anymore. And the reason is because there are products made from plants, products made through cellular agriculture, products made through acellular agriculture that are more efficient, are just as good, if not better, and are the default choice. And that's my mission. That's why I was at the Good Food Institute. That's why I'm here. Um, are we going to do it alone? Of course not. I mean, I would be so, so honored to be a part of that solution and to have Redo have even... A few percents of market share because these are really big markets. But I mean, all the folks, all of my friends that are that are running companies in the space are going to be part of the solution too. And and that's what's really exciting is that this is a this is a group of people who have a mission 
and we see a path to achieving that mission. And being part of that is really, really exciting. I'm glad I talked to you at this stage of your, of your story because you don't, I don't often get to, to talk to entrepreneurs that are even pre-launch. Um, and increasingly, I want to do more of that because I think um, even, even your stories, although it's maybe just a year old or something, it's, there's so much in it that someone else can hopefully listen to and uh, be inspired by or be, um, be fascinated by, and if nothing else, be intrigued by your product so they can go out and try it. Um, and I hope this conversation achieves all those goals and you know, as I said, we're at, you're, you're definitely at the starting point of a pretty long journey. And, um, and if, you, if you go at it with the kind of uh, practical yet out-of-the-box thinking that you've, you've taken so far with, with the way you've uh, approached getting into the accelerator to getting investors and hopefully as you go to market with your products, um, I, I think you're going you're gonna to have some pretty good... Uh, experiences if not i don't want to say success because it's too early but you're definitely going to learn a lot and i think it's going to be a fun fascinating journey to follow uh in the years ahead awesome thank you yeah and uh i've said this a few times but we're growing like crazy we're hiring and uh, i'm sure if you're listening to this podcast just like i was listening to the podcast before uh, i even got into the space uh, i'm sure you're uh, a total rock star or badass so uh hit us up thank you so much man You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.